Hi, I'm Annie Fadley. Welcome to more Pitchfork Economics bonus content. Zach, can you give the people what they want? Hey, Zach here. So uh, one of the best parts of making this podcast is that we get to talk to some of the world's most influential thinkers. And the nature of those kind of conversations is that we have to take a really big interview and boil it down into a tidy little episode. And so some of the best parts of the conversation miss the cut. So occasionally we're going to release those full conversations and we want to do it as bonus content. And that's what we're doing here today. I know for me, one of my favorite conversations we've had was with Professor Yuval Harari. He's easily one of the most influential thinkers on our work at Civic Ventures. And in fact, uh, his book, Sapiens, is literally required reading for our staff. And it is the rare book that makes it into every one of our staff members' top fives. So we really appreciate uh, his conversation with us. And we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did. Dr. Hurry, how are you? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. Good. You have been very busy. Uh, yes, yeah, too busy, <laughs> I think. No, uh, it's it's just been it's been astounding to watch uh, the evolution of your work and your ideas. So, uh, congratulations! Super fun to watch and uh, consume. Oh. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Hurry. As you may know, we're in the social change business. And uh, particularly around economic policy and economic ideas. And your first book, Sapiens, had a huge impact on our thinking. And in particular, the way in which you, your historical perspective informs both how human beings, uh, you know, why we are different from other creatures and how we have evolved using um, our, you know, a culture created by shared stories and subjective realities and, and um, imagined orders has enormous explanatory power. And uh, we would love for you to just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I would be happy to. Um, so, well, where do we start? Um, usually when people try to understand the superiority of homo sapiens, of humans to all other animals, they tend to think on the individual level, as if there is something special about my body or my brain that is so superior to the brain of a chimpanzee or to the brain of a pig or or an elephant. But in fact, on the individual level, we are not so special and we are not significantly better or, or even at all better than other animals. What really makes us unique is the amazing ability to cooperate flexibly on, in very large numbers. We can cooperate in millions and billions, whereas no other social mammal can, can approach us. Uh, the social insects can, can, com- can cooperate in, in, in thousands, but they lack flexibility. They can't change the way their society functions. Uh, it takes the millions of years of evolution to change the society, whereas we just have a revolution and can change society within a few years. Now, what enables us, what gives us this amazing ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers is our ability to create and spread and believe in fictional stories. Uh, If you examine any large-scale human cooperation, whether a religion, a church, or a corporation, or or a trade network, you will always discover that it is founded, it is based on fictional stories, stories about entities that don't exist anywhere except in the shared imagination of human beings, 
uh, entities like gods, like nations, like corporations, like money. Um, to, to take maybe the last example of money, uh, money is not an objective reality. Uh, you can't eat or drink or do anything useful with, with, with dollar bills. The only reason people value them is because they believe in the stories uh, about the dollar, the stories told by the most important and most successful storytellers of all, which are the bankers and the chairperson of the Federal Reserve and, 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 and so forth. And this is what, an, and, and I'm not saying it's bad, uh, this is what enables billions of complete strangers to trade and cooperate effectively because they all believe in the same story about the dollar. Uh, chimpanzees can't do it. Uh, chimpanzees can trade, can barter, but uh, like I give you a coconut and you give me a banana, this can work with chimpanzees, but it demands a lot of trust and, and intimate knowledge of, of, of one another. If two strange chimpanzees meet, they cannot trade because they have no trust. They have nothing in common. But if now I go halfway around the world and meet a complete stranger, because we both trust in the story of the dollar, uh, we can trade yeah. and, and we can cooperate. Which is just, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. And, you know, one of the really amazing uh, ways in which you explained this so effectively in your first book was, uh, was uh, 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 raising, uh, uh, just reminding us that we've always had these stories uh, and the Code of Hammurabi being one of the, one of the best examples uh, from, er, from you know, earlier human civilizations and how that story was both fictional uh, but, but accepted as essentially objective reality by, those, by, by the people of that time and, and valued and, and put placed values in all the elements in society in a, in a, in a pretty prescribed way. And, and we look back at that story and read it and think, oh, well, these things are insane and ridiculous, but it, it is insane and ridiculous to, 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 to value a woman's life at 30 shekels or whatever it was. Uh, but we do exactly the same thing today. I mean, the, the, you know, our economy is constructed in precisely the same way. And saying that uh, a, a, um, a person who works in a restaurant in the United States of America is simply worth $2.13 plus tips is no less arbitrary than calling a woman's life worth 30 shekels. And, and, that, uh, yeah. and, and, and that is, you know, kind of for, was for us a really remarkable and powerful realization. Yeah, of course, you know, the, the underlying story today is that we didn't decide that this person is worth $2. It's market forces Precisely. that decided it. And market forces are objective and natural, and they are not a fictional story. But it, it's obvious that uh, the story of the free market is also just a story. Yes. In reality, there is never such a thing as a completely free market. If you try to create like the utopian free market, a market which, in which there are no regulations, in which everything can be bought and sold, and it's market forces that determine the value of everything, then this market will very quickly collapse because one of the things you can buy and sell on such a free market is the courts, 
why, why, why make an exception for the cost? This is also something, this is also a commodity. So if I'm richer, I can pay the judge. If we have a disagreement about a contract, I can, have, I can pay the judge. And, you know, it's a free market. Right. So whoever pays the highest price, and what is the price of, of, of ruling in my favor? Wonderful. But very soon, trust will collapse, and yeah. you will not have any market at all. So unless the market is backed by some other institutions, it cannot function. So the idea that, no, the markets are completely objective, they determine in a natural way, irrespective of human beliefs, what is the value of everything, this is just another fiction. Yes, and, and w- w- again, one of, the, one of the really profound insights, for me anyway, was, I think you called it the, uh, the iron law of history, that uh, these stories are always anchored by one of two claims. Either God says, or it's a law of nature. <laughs> yes. These are two main, main options. Yeah. It's either God said it, or, or this, is, this is how nature functions. Yes. And in, in most cases, uh, when, if you find references to nature in a book of, of law and not of biology, uh, most of the time it is not nature. It is culture. It's just... People don't, don't want to admit that this is a cultural fabrication, so they say, no, it's a natural law. Yeah, and, and, and that one graph in that one book explained for me the prior 10 years of frustration that I've had. Like, so we have been litigating, among other things, the minimum wage. And mm-hmm. the thousands of emails, hate, hate mail, tweets, Facebook postings that I've gotten from people who say things like, look, you, you simply don't n- understand the law of supply and demand that if wages mm. go up and, you know, uh, if, uh, uh, jobs will go down and recognizing why it was so important to those folks that it be an, an essentially a natural law um, that 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 anchored their entire, essentially their entire intersubjective reality and was the thing that uh, enabled, uh, essentially enables the, or, you know, the way in which we have organized status, privileges, and power in our society. Yeah, and it, you know, it releases you from responsibility, from ethical yes. and political responsibility. Yes. Hey, we didn't decide it. Yeah. It's nature. This yes. is how things are. What do you want? Yeah. These people are poor because... It's a law of nature. You know, yeah. we, I had nothing to do with it. Super, it's super fascinating. Um, it, it, so, 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 so I have a, a, a question for you. One of the, one I think one of the most profound things that you explained to me in uh, Sapiens was when you, you said that capitalism was based on faith in an imaginary future that is always bigger and more prosperous than the present. Yeah. Um, what happens when we stop believing? If we stop believing, we are not yet there. Uh, if we stop believing, everything will collapse. Because most, actually even today, most of the money that exists today in the world is credit. And credit is in fact belief that the future will be better. If you don't believe the future will be better than now, better in the sense say, that we produce more, will be more wealthy, then the amount of credit in the system is zero. You can't give credit. What you have now is what you have. You'll never have more. 
Now, over the last few centuries, think belief in the future, and this belief had good reasons behind it. It's not, it's not arbitrary. We did, the, the economy did grow in an enormous way over the last few centuries, mainly thanks to scientific progress. But the result uh, is that now almost all the money in the world and all the wealth in the, in the world is, uh, is, is, is credit. And if suddenly people stop believing that the future will be better, it's not that we will stay where we are, but everything will collapse. Like most of the money that you see in your bank account will evaporate. That's a terrifying, <laughs> for, for some of us, that's a terrifying idea. Yeah, yeah. For those for those, those of you have, with the money, yeah. th- this is why the pitchforks are coming, Nick. Yeah, um, so uh, it, it's terrifying for everybody. Look, yeah. uh, if you don't have anything in your bank account, you should also be terrified yeah. because in such a situation, all social order will also collapse. And yeah. usually, when social order collapse, it's the weakest members of society yeah. that suffer the most. Yes. So don't like wait for it with gleeful like yeah. eyes because it, if this happens, it will be terrible. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Uh, you know, there is not a better example of an imagined order or an intersubjective reality than economic theory. It is, it, it is a construct created mostly for and by elites to enforce status relationships that the society prefers. But there is part of economics, which is truly scientific, and I often struggle to distinguish between the, 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 the part of economics which is an imagined order, essentially just a way to, a story we tell ourselves to enforce status constructs, and the, the actual science part of economics, which I think is a, is a much it is a much less important part, but but a part nonetheless. Have you ever considered that distinction? Um, well, obviously there are many many facts which are which are true, which are objectively true, and they are not some kind of intersubjective construct. <clears throat> if you you start with you know you just count how how much wheat a particular field or a particular country produced last year, then there are objective facts there. Correct. Uh, but as you move from the realm of, of counting wheat to the realm of explaining the laws of economics and how, how everything functions and where value comes from and so forth, then you uh, gradually enter the realm, the intersubjective realm in which the imagination and fiction plays a more and more important uh, part. I would emphasize, however, that there is nothing wrong with fictions and stories and so forth. You can't organize any large-scale human system uh, without it. You can't, I don't know, you can't play basketball unless right. you have 10 people agreeing <clears throat> on laws which are completely imaginary. They don't come from physics or biology. We invented them. You can't similarly have a trade network unless you agree on some rules and laws. And most of these rules and laws, of course, are invented uh, by human beings. And another point which is important uh, to make um, is that the capitalist system that has uh, dominated the world for the last uh, three or four centuries had also um, achieved enormous uh, benefits for humankind. Yes. And if it was only a question of, you know, 
uh, benefiting a tiny elite at the expense of everybody else, it would not have survived and spread yeah. in the way that it has. Um, it's, it's a very complicated uh, uh, history, but we cannot ignore the enormous benefits yes. that billions of people uh, uh, gained yeah. from the capitalist system. And it's, it's not a coincidence that today in the world, I would say that this is the, the, the only universal religion yes. of humankind is the belief in economic growth. Yes. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fervent capitalist. I believe, in, I believe that capitalism is largely the most uh, useful social technology ever invented by human beings. Uh, but the form that capitalism takes and the ideological frameworks that we create that, that, um, that, uh, essentially uh, help us explain how it works and what kinds of things are permissible or not permissible is is something that we we actually can evolve and change and I think that's at the core of our work uh, and one of the, and, and one of the reasons we're such huge fans is that your historical perspective on this gives somebody like me the confidence that these fictions can and should be changed over time to improve the way in which they affect people's lives. Yeah, and they have changed. I mean, yeah. you look, I don't know, a century ago, two centuries ago, so you go to 19th century England, and you have all these arguments about, about again, nature, that people say it's not good to have 80-year-old kids working in coal mines. And people would come and say, well, this is the law of supply of demand. This is done by nature. You can't change it. If you now have a regulation that eight-year-old kids cannot work in coal mines, then the French will, will do it, and we will be left behind. So we must do it. And this was a very forceful argument. But eventually, uh, child labor was, uh, uh, was abolished. Right. And everybody now look back and say, hey, it was actually a great idea yes. to send the kids to school and not to the coal mines. It actually encouraged economic, uh, right. uh, economic growth because they started inventing and doing all kinds of things that they couldn't if they just uh, stayed in the coal mine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. So 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 today, you know, we're told that uh, we can't we can't raise taxes on corporations or the rich because that would uh, destroy growth and kill jobs. But if we tell a different story, a different a different shared mythology, uh, we can change uh, uh, th that um, uh, that imagined order, right? Uh, it's not so easy. I mean, we can't just invent any story we like and, and make it reality. Uh, first of all, you have to convince everybody. And secondly, you have to convince reality. Yes. I mean, there is always a tension between the stories people tell and what is actually happening. Yeah. So you have the priest coming and saying, okay, if we dance this rain dance, there will be rain. And he manages to convince everybody and they dance the rain dance and there is no rain. So eventually you do have to confront reality, and not every story about the, the, the economy or the social system will, will, will actually work, yeah. but it is very important to realize that we are not dealing here with natural laws. So we need to have a discussion about what, what, what kind of economic system to have, how, whether to raise taxes on the rich, for example. But this discussion should be based on the understanding that these are not natural laws. There is no law of nature which says you cannot tax the rich. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, and or that if you do uh, uh, societal well, if collapse, you do, will, will collapse. Yeah, societal collapse will follow. And you know, in in our work every day, um, you know, all of these things come together in the most vivid way around arguments over raising wages for workers and just the insistence. Uh, by our uh, opposition that, that that to do so violates the law of nature that it will lead to instantaneous collapse and so on and so forth and and and, and what, what's been most interesting about uh, litigating these ideas is the gradual recognition that these are competing stories about how we want to organize uh, the, uh, about how we want to organize our society they're not really contests over facts. And in fact, if you actually look at the data empirically about what happens when you raise wages, there is zero evidence that it actually kills jobs. Um, but, you know, that, that the, the, um, the, the, the claim that raising wages kills jobs is best understood essentially as a negotiating tactic. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intimidation tactic masquerading as an economic theory, which has been, uh, you know, utterly fascinating. I'm not an expert on, on these particular issues, yeah. so I really don't know. I have no opinion yeah. of, of, of myself whether it's true or not yep. that raising wages kills jobs or not. Or not. Right. Uh, I think that in the end, this, this is, uh, first of all, this is an empirical question. It is. Uh, it, sh- it, should, it should be falsifiable or proven yeah. through evidence and, and, and through data. And, and the other thing is, is, is yes, even this, it, it, it is not, as we said, a question of, of, of natural law, because certainly you can construct all kinds of social systems in which uh, it won't, I mean, even if you discover that, okay, uh, I don't know, if you raise wages, then employers move the factory across the border to another yeah. country, yeah. so you can have a law that forbids them to do it. Yeah, of course. Again, this will have consequences. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. all these things, they are human decisions. You can make very wrong decisions. We do have a lot of examples of people trying to do an economic revolution and destroying the economy. If you look, I don't know, at Venezuela recently, or what is now happening yes. in Turkey. So it's very dangerous just to think, okay, let's just change the narrative no. and do what we want. It, there is you, still reality out there. You have to be. But it, we should also be aware of the opposite view that you cannot change anything because nature decreed that the way things are is natural and any attempt to change even a little thing will break the laws of nature and everything will collapse. Right. It's fascinating. So I know that you you believe that uh, um, the three major threats to civilization are climate change, nuclear war, and technological change. Um, yes. Let's let's just let's just ignore climate change and and, and nuclear <laughs> war for purposes okay. of this conversation, um, and talk about um, the way in which technological change uh, is disrupting uh, human societies today. Talk about that a little bit. Well, the two most important technologies are artificial intelligence and and biotechnology. And they uh, can threaten the, the basis of, of human civilization in, in many different ways. Uh, one way which is particularly relevant to the discussion here is the, the, the potential that AI will outperform humans in more and more jobs, in more and more, more skills, and will push hundreds of millions of people out of the job market. And even if new jobs appear, it will require a tremendous effort uh, to retrain 
people to fill the new jobs. And even if some countries might uh, uh, become extremely rich due to the automation revolution, other countries might completely collapse. Yes. And all the talk about you know, universal basic income, in 90% of cases, people actually mean national basic income, not universal. <laughs> they don't think that the U.S. government yes. will raise taxes in California and send them to Guatemala to Correct. pay unemployed textile workers there. So uh, some countries are going to be maybe devastated by the automation revolution, even if other countries prosper as, as never before. Uh, the other fronts that, uh, that loom large are the, the polit- on the political front, we could see the rise of, of digital dictatorships, which are based on an unprecedented ability to control and manipulate people. Um, I could say maybe that the most important fact about living in the 21st century is that you are now a hackable animal. Correct. Until today, no, no outside force, corporation, government, uh, organization could really hack you, could really decipher your oper- operational system and know what you think and what you feel and, 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 and what you want. But given the combination of advances, in, in, especially in brain science, with advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning, we are quite close to the point when an external system could understand you far better than you understand yourself. And then it can basically sell you anything it wants, whether it's a product or a politician. Yeah. And the easiest people to manipulate are the people who don't believe this, who don't believe that they can be manipulated. Uh, the people that believe that, no, my decisions and choices reflect my free will. Yes. Nobody can understand me, so nobody can really manipulate me. So these are just two of the, of the, of the major dangers yeah. uh, that we are now facing. So uh, let's start with the threat of automation, um, if you can call it a threat. I, I think that may be unfair. Uh, so it, it, my own view is that we need not fear technological innovation because that has been the source of all improvements in human um, in hum, human welfare over history um, I, I, my own view is that we need not fear capitalism because it is merely a social technology that enables groups of people to cooperate to solve one another's problems at scale but what mm-hmm. we do need to fear is the ideological framework that sits on top of both of those things. And I believe that the operating system of the world today can be characterized as neoliberalism, which today concentrates the benefits um, and socializes the costs uh, of, of, of economic activity. And if you get the ideological operating system right, um, that, that there is no reason why increases in automation can't generally benefit human societies as people transition from for instance uh, working at fast food restaurants to caring for children or caring for elderly people or giving one another massages or whatever it is that human beings can do that machines cannot I, i completely agree i don't think that technology in itself uh is evil 
um, technology can, uh, the new technologies can, can result in immense benefits for humankind. Uh, just to give a simple example, uh, every year, more than a million people are killed in traffic accidents. Most of these are caused by human error. And if we replace yeah. human drivers with self-driving cars, then we save at least a million lives every year. Yeah. So th- this is wonderful. I don't think we should not do it just in order to protect the jobs of truck drivers and taxi drivers, which are in any case, most people don't really dream, their the no. life dream is not to work as a truck driver, they no. have to do it yeah. to get food, right. but it's not their dream. So if we can replace the truck drivers with uh, self-driving trucks and use the uh, enormous new resources and, and, and revenues to support the ex-truck drivers in a different way, maybe pay them to take care of their children, right. then this is wonderful. There is yeah. not, not, no problem with that. Right. The, the real issue is, as you say, what is the ideological framework which controls the new technologies? And we have the example from the 20th century that the industrial technologies uh, of you know, electricity and, and cars and trains and all that, they could be used to create uh, liberal democracies or to create communist and fascist dictatorships. Right. So it's not the trains or the radio that are the problem, but the ideology that decides what to do with the trains and with the radio. Yeah. No. So let's go to, uh, I think, I think the other uh, worry that you have about, you know, uh, you know, sparked by social media and the way in which uh, these big companies are, are, are getting better and better at essentially hacking our brains, making, a, yeah. making us addicted to, you know, the, in, the, you know, the attention economy that survives by addicting us to certain kinds of information um, that's a that's a that's a trickier problem. I I I, I, I think um, you know I have children. I have teenagers, and so I can see this mm-hmm. happening in real time. And um, and uh, I think there's a lot of evidence from neuropsychologists to indicate that there is something very different and worse going on here uh, in these technologies than people understand and suspect. Uh, w- mm-hmm. Do you have what should we be doing? other than complaining <laughs> and worrying. <laughs> well, we can do several things. Uh, you know, on, on the individual level, I, I think the oldest advice is still the best advice, uh, which is know thyself. Yeah. Um, all these addictive technologies and all the fake news and all the Russian trolls and so forth, they are all latching on to our own weaknesses. Yes. They cannot create fear or hatred or anger out of nothing, they discover our own pre-existing weaknesses and magnify and exploit them. So uh, you just need to get your, to know yourself and especially your weaknesses better to be on your guard. You know, uh, throughout history it was a good idea to get to know yourself better, but you never had competition. If in the age of Socrates or Buddha you didn't make the effort, you were still a black box to right. the rest of humanity. Correct. But now, if you don't do the effort to know yourself, you have competition. Uh, Amazon or Google or the government or the Chinese Communist Party, they are trying to hack you as we speak. So if you don't make the effort, it will become very easy to control and manipulate you. Now, many people are not going to, do, to make, make the, the effort. effort or, right. uh, 
<laughs> or un- un- unable to do it. So here again, you can you can use social regulations yes. and and and, and uh, legal regulations, and you can also use technology. Yeah. The same technology that is used to hack you can also protect you if you just build a different system or use it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, at present, all these machine learning algorithms, they, uh, they get to know you in order to uh, get you addicted to fake news or to funny cat videos or whatever. But you can use exactly the same technology to protect you. Yeah. Let's say that just as your computer has an antivirus, your brain today needs an antivirus. We need to build these AI sidekicks or AI defenders that uh, monitor us and monitor, they, as you say, serve, serve the web. And when some funny cat video or some very upsetting headline about President Trump captures your attention and you're about to click on it, the AI sidekick will come to your rescue, yeah. will realize that somebody is trying to hack you and will prevent this from happening yeah. and maybe issue a warning, just as it does today when there is an, an, an the antivirus. Virus. So, oh, yeah, tells you a virus attack. So, and, and this is based on getting to know you. Yeah. Your AI sidekick monitors you, but not in the service of some corporation or government. It, it is serving you. Yes. And when you are too weak to defend yourself, it comes to your rescue and and protects you. This is what I need to keep me from eating uh, before bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that, that that's such an interesting idea. You know, it, it, you know, uh, 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 colleague Tristan Harris, who who uh, who was very much involved in these issues, simply thinks that we should make the attention economy illegal. That that that, that if you eliminate the ad based business model and force people to pay these companies uh, a, a subscription service, then they're no longer economically incentivized to make you addicted. Uh, I, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, I think that. In many, many cases, actually here, the, 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 the free market can come to our rescue yeah. and just pay for things. Yes. If you think about another the news market, then it's a bit crazy that people expect to get news for free. I mean, information is maybe the most important resource now. Right. And, you know, people don't expect to get food for free or, or uh, cars for free. So why do they think that getting uh, news for free is a good idea? I mean, if you had to pay good money for your information, then this could be one of the best guarantees that instead to, of abusing your attention, yeah. all these uh, uh, media outlets will actually be serving your interests. Right. Uh, so would you uh, tell... Uh, uh, excuse me, Dr. Harari, how are we on time? Because we could go on forever. We have something like five more minutes. Okay. okay. Well, then to would you, to the next thing. Would you please tell us a little bit about your new book? Um, yes, uh, it's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and it's focused on the present. Um, my first book, Sapiens, was about the, the past, how this ape from East Africa became the ruler of the world. Then my second book, Homo Deus, was about the distant future, what might, might happen to humans in decades and centuries, and how we might at least try to upgrade ourselves into gods. And then the new book tries to take the insights from the past and the future and say something about the present, but from a, from a long-term perspective. I mean, after all, we can't live in the past or in the future. We have to live in the present. 
So whatever insights, history, uh, and looking at the future have to offer us, they must manifest somehow in in, in relation to the uh, uh, urgent issues of the day. Yeah. So I have chapters on immigration, on terrorism, on the rise of populism, on, on science fiction, and all, all kinds of things, both in, in, in politics and society and, and art. And I try to offer a long-term perspective on these issues and, and these problems. So if you get, if, what, what are Dr. Harari's top three tips <laughs> for surviving the present? Yeah. Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give something. Uh, for, for individuals, yeah. I would say that the number one tip is know yourself. Yeah. Which I said is the oldest tip in the world. Yeah. But it's more urgent than ever because you should know that you now have competition. And if you don't get to know yourself, you are extremely vulnerable to being hacked and manipulated uh, by corporations and governments and so forth. For the UN Collective, I would say my, my most important tip is that global problems have only global solutions. Yeah. Uh, our biggest problems today are th the three big problems we yeah. face our nuclear war and climate change and technological disruption, and you cannot solve any of them Locally. on the national basis. Yeah. No nation can stop climate change or regulate artificial intelligence by itself yeah. if it doesn't have the cooperation of other nations. Right. So nationalism and isolationism, they are not taking us yeah. in the right direction. And maybe the last tip I would say maybe to, um, to the younger generation that in order to survive the 21st century, you will have to reinvent yourself again and again throughout your life. The idea that you, uh, you learn and, and, and create some identity in your younger years, and then for the rest of your life, you rely on that, this is going to be no. obsolete. Yes. And you will have to reinvent yourself throughout your life. So the one thing you will need above all else is mental balance and emotional intelligence. Because all the other skills, they will come and go. Yes. But managing constant change is extremely stressful. It is. And it so I would invest above all else in developing your emotional intelligence and your mental balance. This is great. This is great. One final question. So if, yep. we're, if we are reading your books to discover new ideas, what books are you reading to discover new oh. ideas? I read all kinds of books. Yeah. I mean, my, my system is, is to read whatever falls into my hand. But if I, don't, uh, if I don't learn anything new and important in the first 10 pages, I just put it aside and start uh -huh. another book. So what's the most remarkable so, thing you've read lately? What's the best book I've read lately? Um, two weeks ago, I finished Michael Pollan's new book. Oh, I heard. Uh, I think it's called How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, I heard it's that's about great. The, the revival of, of, of research on psychedelic drugs yeah. uh, from a scientific perspective. And it's a very insightful and, and well-written yeah. book. Yeah. And uh, it, I think at least for the last few months, maybe it was the best book that's that, that I've read. That's great. And also, uh, this is not such a, an, an unusual recommendation, but Steven Pinker's new book, yes. Enlightenment Now, 
I have some disagreements with some of, the, of, his, of his arguments, but it's still an, an amazing book yeah. and, and definitely worth reading. It's I, fantastic. I agree. Great book. Fantastic. Great. Dr. Harari, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, um, and thanks for doing all the great thinking. It's been uh, very uh, fun and inspirational to follow your work. So. Uh, thank you. And okay. Thank, thank you for having me. Hope hope to hope to meet you someday. Take care. Yeah, I hope so too. Take okay. care. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L A R J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. Thanks for listening.